If you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, we're going to be Mark 7 and 8 this morning. I do appreciate everyone being here and thankful that uh, we do have a couple of visitors. Look forward to meeting you afterwards after we uh, wrap up with the, the worship service and just thankful for the opportunity we have to be in this space. I feel like I say that a lot. I think it's because sometimes I'm not very thankful for it. Um, not that there's anything bad with it, except for you might get dripped on by some water with events, but um, just watch out for that. And we, we're just very thankful, but I, I think it's just a way for me to, to be reminded of the things that I probably take for granted. Um, I know I take for granted a lot. So it's always good to be back. I, I know I was going last Sunday, and I'm thankful that I'm able to be with the congregation that I was with and to uh, see a lot of friends that I haven't seen in a while, uh, to worship with them and um, encourage each other, and also thankful uh, to be back and to do the same today. So Mark 7 and 8, what I want to do is I want to take a look at three different miracles of Jesus. And the reason I want to do that is because it's never a bad thing to look at the miracles of Jesus and to draw some conclusions from them. But these three miracles are pretty unique in my opinion. Um, Actually, Tim read from another one that is pretty unique, where you have the woman with the issue of blood or discharge of blood. Some translations say, and it's just unique in how that whole thing uh, plays out. And there are a few other unique miracles. Like, for instance, you might remember that there was one time where some friends let down their, their buddy through the roof, right? Because there was no way to get through the crowd for Jesus to heal the man. You might think of Lazarus and how that was a unique miracle. You might think of the centurion servant and think, well, that was pretty unique uh, just in how that played out. I think these three are unique in who they happen to. And in what Jesus actually does with two of them. And the reason I say that is because Jesus wasn't a very showy person, in my opinion. I don't, I don't see how he did a lot of things that were just like, oh my goodness, this is so crazy. Like that looks like amazing and it just, it was showy in any way. Two of these miracles are a little different though. But I, I want to make a point right off the bat that I'm not saying Jesus is a showy person in the miracles. And that he was making a performance of them. But I think there was a reason they look very different than a lot of the other miracles. So the three miracles we're going to look at is the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, and really, it's not her that's healed. It's actually her daughter. But it's a Syrophoenician woman and her daughter that is healed. There's a blind and mute man. Excuse me, a deaf and mute man later on in Mark 7. And then in Mark 8, there's this blind man. I think these are important because it helps us to see some truths about Jesus for our life. And it also helps us to see truths about Jesus for other people's lives. And I think there's some things that we see in these miracles that should spur us on to not only seek Christ more, but should also spur us on to tell other people about Christ. So let's go ahead and start in Mark chapter 7. Let's go ahead and begin in verse 24, and we'll read down through 30. Mark 7, verse 24. And from there Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not know, didn't, excuse me, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. 
There's another count of this that is in Matthew chapter 15. There are a few other details that I'll reference from that and a couple of things I'll quote from that. But just three quick observations from, from this and realizations about Jesus from this miracle. The first is that Jesus is without a doubt the only one to bring about change in this woman and her daughter's life. And she knows that. You see how she pursued him. He, he wants to go and be alone for a little bit. Totally get that. And it's not hard for me to go and get some alone time. Jesus, not so much. It's kind of hard for him to get some alone time. And he has to seem, seemingly go on a mountain to get alone. And even then, he kind of takes a few disciples with him. But, so he really doesn't have a lot of time to just be by himself. And if you think about where he is, he's actually pretty far north in Israel. Like he, He's in Tyre and Sidon, which if you, were, if you had a map and you want to look at it, um, I'm not going to draw at all because uh, I can't. But uh, So you have this Mediterranean Sea right through here. You have all of Israel. Like here's Jerusalem, you know, Dead Sea. Go up here, Sea of Galilee. Tyre and Sidon, like here's Tyre, here's Sidon. So really far north. In fact, he's so far north that it's not a surprise that he has this interaction with this Gentile woman. And that's really significant. Because as Tim pointed out that Jesus allowed a woman that is unclean because of this issue of blood to reach out and touch his garment. Not like he didn't know what was going on. I mean, he could have stopped that if he wanted to. Or he could have just not allowed her to be healed if he wanted to. But he allowed that, and she was unclean. Now you have this other woman that is, without a doubt, unclean, according to, to the Jews. And Jesus actually regards her in some way. We'll get into a second the fact that he does say that she's a dog, uh, comparatively. Um, but, you, but you do notice that she has a moment to talk to Jesus. And if you go to Matthew 15, she's like calling out, and she's trying to call out to Jesus, and his disciples are like, Jesus, this woman, she's not going to stop, you know? And, and then, then he actually speaks to her. Like, who, who is she that Jesus would actually regard her? And who is she that she could even enter this home and come towards Jesus? Well, maybe Jesus is actually in the home of people that would accept her. Maybe he's in a Gentile house. We, I, I don't, it doesn't say what house he's in. But he's around these type of people, which is really interesting if you think of the context of Mark 7. Because earlier in this chapter, there's been this whole discussion about clean and unclean. Because the Pharisees have said, Jesus, your disciples are eating without washing their hands. Can we all agree that that is a little gross, actually? You know? um, and that's not what they mean. They, they mean like the ceremonial washings. I don't, I don't think I would have been able to actually go through that. That would have been so annoying for me just to be like, okay, I'll wash and wash and wash. Okay, I'll, I'll do it again, you know? And I didn't even do anything unclean. But if by chance, because if you're out and about among people in the marketplace and all that, there's a good chance that there are unclean things and people around. So there's a chance that you might have gotten unclean. So if by chance that happened, you got to wash. So you see, it wasn't actually to meet a, a law or to meet a commandment of God. It was because they knew there was a commandment, so let's set up these other commandments around that commandment, and just you keep that now. That becomes your law, and Jesus gets on to them. It's like, oh, you you do a really good job of leaving the commandments of God for the traditions of men. You're really good at that. And so then he goes in this whole discourse about, well, what actually makes a person unclean? It's not what goes into a person, but what comes out of a person. Just real quick, I, I think this has helped me kind of reshape. Uh, even the the idea of of keeping yourself pure and and um, clean, because for them 
if they actually wanted to make sure that they were clean and, and they were not eating with unclean hands or taking part of anything unclean, you know what they would do is they would just make sure their surroundings, they make sure they knew their surroundings at all times. They would guard themselves in that way instead of saying, well, most likely I'm going to see, I'm going to be around something unclean. So I better just go ahead and wash. No, like if you actually want to have a clean heart, then you're going to take every step you can to make sure that you are keeping the commandments of God and not just setting up your own commandments. Like some people call it a hedge around the commandments of God. That's what the Pharisees did. So actually a clean heart and a a pure heart seeks to make sure that we do what God says and not just um, do something else that is uh, like another step from what God says. It it just makes me focus so much on what God says that that is what, what guides everything I do instead of, well, let me actually come up with something else and then kind of, and then actually I can do what God says anyway. Um, so there's that whole discussion. Then you have this, this Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician woman. And if you want to know why she's called Syrophoenician, it's because she was from that area, Syrophoenician. So, um, it's also called, she also just called a Canaanite woman, I think in Matthew 15. So Jesus is the only one that can bring about change for this woman. And she knows it. And and I think that another thing we need to point out is that if we believe that Jesus is the only one, then we will do whatever it takes to be around him and we'll do whatever it takes to seek healing and help from him. If I believe that Jesus is the one, then I'm going to keep going even when other people say that I need to go away, like Matthew 15 describes. And I'm going to keep on going and I'm going to keep on pursuing even when I feel insulted. Because did you notice what Jesus says to the woman here? Jesus says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, maybe Jesus didn't really mean that she was kind of like a dog. Well, then she didn't get what he was saying because she says, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat the children's crumbs. He's like, all right, good point. So go home. Your daughter's healed. She understands who she is, and she understands who she is according to, to the Jews and according to Jesus. But the point is that everyone needs healing from Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to value, we're talking about this in a little bit. Jesus isn't necessarily trying to value her differently. If that was the case, then he wouldn't have actually healed her daughter. He does do that. I think he's actually saying that it's not time yet. It's a matter of children first and then I think the first is the key word there. And her point is, yeah, but even while the children are eating, there's a little bit that falls on the floor. So can I just get a little bit for my daughter? And so he heals her. So everyone needs healing from Jesus, and he's going to heal anyone as long as you seek him. So let's go ahead and read, uh, keep reading in Matthew 7, I mean, excuse me, Mark 7, and we'll finish out the chapter with the healing of this deaf and mute man. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre, went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Real quick, let's stop there. You remember how I said that it was like Tyre here, then Sidon was more north? You notice where he's trying to go? It says that he's trying to go to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is over here. It's like southeast of Tyre. Why is he going north to then go southeast? That doesn't make any sense. So I think that the reason that happens is it's kind of like an exodus when God stops the people after they've escaped and they're, they're running away from Pharaoh. He stops them. And if you actually look on a map, I, I apologize. I don't have uh, the passage in Exodus where it actually talks about this written down. But he stops them as they are like, about to like kind of go over the top of the Red Sea. And he stops them right here and says, I want you to go back. And so he brings them back around to the front part of the Red Sea 
just so that he can perform this amazing thing where he saves them. Because if you think back to the children of Israel, what was the main thing that God wanted them to remember and to tell their children and their children's children? Remember what I did for you that day in the Red Sea. Remember how I saved you from the Egyptians, how I brought you out and I brought you salvation. I think the reason Jesus goes this route is for the same reason. For God to work amazing things and to bring about salvation for people so that they will always remember that. Because if, if you remember what's going to happen eventually as the gospel of Christ starts spreading out throughout all the world, there are people who are ready to receive that unto salvation. But how could they be ready for that? Maybe it's because Jesus actually kind of prepared his own way by going to these other places, teaching and performing miracles. So I think, that, I think this is an amazing thing that he goes this route. He goes north to go southeast. So it doesn't make any sense, but there's a reason behind it so that God can do some amazing things that people will always remember. So the people bring to him a man that was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. All right, let's go to Mark 8, and let's go ahead and read 22 through 26. Mark 8, beginning of verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not enter the village. Just a few realizations and observations from these two miracles. Jesus wants people to see and hear, but, only, but mainly so they can believe. If you think back to what Jesus actually says about the Pharisees in Mark chapter 4, uh, this, so this is earlier in, in Mark, this is when he's going through the parable of the sower, and he's explaining it, and then he says why he speaks in parables. He says of the Pharisees and, and even some of the others that were scribes, they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand. We don't have time to get into all of this. I think one question would be, what did Jesus not want people to see and hear? Or is this actually a quote from an Old Testament passage of Scripture that just kind of proclaims that people will see but not see and will hear but not hear? They have eyes that are able to see, but they're not going to. And they have ears that are able to hear, but they're not going to hear. I think really what we get from that is that Jesus doesn't desire that the Pharisees don't see and hear but it's just a reality that they won't. But that's all Jesus wants. He wants people to see him and he wants people to hear him, but only so that they can believe. Because if, if these people of this day don't see Jesus, then what is their confirmation that they should listen to his message? Well, I mean, just the fact that other people listen to it? They have ears, so they're hearing this, but they can't see it. So Jesus wants their eyes to be open. What about people that can't hear? They can see the things that Jesus is doing and they can see the people following them, but they can't hear the gospel. They can't hear his teaching. They can't hear anything. So they don't even know that they should believe in this person that is doing these things. 
I, I think from these two miracles, it proves that Jesus wants people to see and hear so that they can be saved. He wants people to change and not just follow him. I think that's really clear. You know, you go over to John chapter 6 after the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus says that the people followed him not because they saw signs, but because they ate their fill. Jesus doesn't want people just to follow him. I mean, he he wanted to escape for a little bit here in in Mark 7. But he doesn't want people just to follow him. If you notice with both of these miracles, he takes people away from the crowd. He takes the deaf man away. He takes the blind man away from the crowd. Now, he does some pretty strange things that we're going to talk about in a second. But, like, for instance, putting his fingers in his ears and spitting on a guy's eyes. Um, So he does some pretty strange things, but he he doesn't do it in a way to show everyone, look what I'm about to do. This is going to be amazing. I think he does this for these two men, for these individuals, to believe in him, to have faith in him. How can they have faith when they don't even know who is in front of them, or they can't hear anything about him? That's what he wants for these two people. Now, he is going to want them to, well, I take that back. He's not going to want some people to go and tell other people. And James, in his reading, he even said, he was like, I don't know why he would say that. Um, I think one reason that Jesus tells some of these people, don't stop, you know, don't tell people about me, is he wants to be able to continue to move freely. And that's the the best I can come up with. Other people probably shouldn't say, well, this is who Jesus is and you need to believe in him because as we look in the New Testament, there actually is one instance where it was um, someone that had a demon in them, right? And they're proclaiming, it's like, hey, well, you're not the person to do this. But more than anything, I think it's about timing. It's not time for Jesus to just have a swarm of people around him. He deals with that already. He needs to be able to go about and perform miracles and teach people. So he wants people to change and not just follow him. And the the last observation that that I have for us is just that he can do things that nobody else can. I think that's why we see people are amazed at him. People want to say that this man did these amazing things, that no one else could do this. If you remember that there was a man that was born blind, and the Pharisees are are really angry because they're like, who did this to you? Who, Who did this? And he's like, well, you know who did it. I already told you. Do you want to follow him as well? They, they bring in his parents and they're like, how did this happen? They're like, we don't know. You should ask him. You know, this idea of performing miracles is amazing to us. But Jesus kind of went above and beyond. He did things that nobody else could and left no doubt that there's nobody else that has the power that he has. So just some quick observations there. So, so what should we take away from these three miracles? So I, I just have four points for us. And And I hope that these will be practical for us. I'll try to make them as practical as I can. Um, But maybe with a couple of these, it's more just internal. Like, we need to examine, do I know that? Do I believe that? Am I allowing that to be kind of on repeat in my head, that this is true about Jesus and about, about what he does? So the first point that I have for us is that desperate faith leads to salvation. You see the woman, how desperate she is for Jesus? I don't think it's just because she's desperate for anybody. She's zoned in on Jesus. She has faith in him. He's the only one that can heal her daughter. Now, why would she want her daughter to be healed? Well, she's tormented by a demon. She has this demon that is possessing her. And she cares about her daughter so much, and she knows that Jesus is the only one that can do something about it, so she's desperate. So she'll be insulted. She'll be told to go away. She'll go to a place that she's not welcome. She'll infringe on someone's 
uh, private time, whatever it takes just for her daughter to be relieved from this demon. In Matthew 15, it says that she was crying out, have mercy on me, O Lord, and that she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And then here in Mark 7, we read that she, she comes, she falls down at his feet. She begs him in verse 26. She's desperate. So I guess just an internal thing for us to think about is how desperate are we for healing from Jesus? And when I say healing, I mean primarily healing from sin. Do we see that sin torments us? That it like eats us away? Or is it something that kind of just has a home for us that feels comfortable? It, it should tear us up. I mean, I mean, when we see other people that live their lives, not just in a sinful way, but like an awful way, that tears us up. And yet we're okay with sin just dwelling within us for us to have these passions and let them rule our lives. We're okay with doing whatever we want to do sometimes. And I'm not saying that's all of us. I'm saying that, that that's me. Like I go through times where there are days, there are weeks, there are months, even in the past, especially where like I, I just didn't even have much of a regard for the sin that was just setting up home in my heart for these evil thoughts, for these um, feelings of greed and these feelings of jealousy and anger and sexual impurity. Now, those things just feel comfortable for us. I need to see that I'm tormented when I have sin in my heart, when I have evil in my heart. And so if I feel tormented like that, I need to be desperate, so desperate that I'll, I'll change whatever, I'll do whatever, I'll go wherever, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes because I need to be healed from that. And Jesus is the only one that's going to do that for me. But I got to be able to, I got to be willing to stick around, right? I, uh, she had to be like this woman, but she stuck around. She did whatever it took. So then the second part of that is that it's not just desperate. It's not just this feeling of desperation, but it's a desperate faith. You see that the woman in Matthew 15, uh, Jesus actually says, "A woman, great is your faith. And then here in Mark 7, it says, For this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. She confirmed her faith in Jesus. He realizes that and says, Yeah, so I'll, I'll hear your, heal your daughter because of your faith. If I'm just desperate, but I don't really believe in Jesus and what he's able to do, then I'm never going to have those sins fully removed from me. I'm never going to be fully healed from the from these evil desires. But if I had that faith and I'm willing to beg, kneel before him, change whatever, go through whatever, that's going to lead to salvation for me. The second major point that I want to bring out is that if Jesus receives anyone, then I should too. So let's talk about this fact that he does say that the children will be fed first uh, because it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So I, I really look at this and think Jesus is speaking to order of teaching and interest to the kingdom. The way the kingdom was going to work is that, when I say kingdom, I mean the kingdom as Jesus paints it, that, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven as a hand and all of that. I, I think it's pretty clear that the Jews had that access to the kingdom first, it seems. I know that traditionally that's how we've looked at it. And as, as I've read through, you know, the gospel and then you go into Acts, it's pretty clear that it is the Jews that had that background, had the understanding of Scripture, that were kind of prepared, waiting for the Messiah. So some of them were just ready. Some of them were ready. And I think that that's why they had first entrance. But it doesn't mean that, like, oh, they get first, they get the best seat in the house, right? Whatever seat that is, front or back, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm more of a back 
bro person, you know, personally. Um, and so what, whatever they get as first, so like they get the best seat in the kingdom, right? That's not really how it works. It, the idea of being in the kingdom is just, it's about being there. It's not about where you are in it, right? So they get, they get the first crack at it, but, but then the Gentiles are right behind that. I mean, they, they get that opportunity right behind them. So I think that's what Jesus is speaking to here because I don't see an example anywhere where Jesus values people differently. If he's going to speak to an adulterous woman, a woman caught in adultery, and speak to her the same way she would a Pharisee, and we actually see that he speaks to Pharisees in a not-so-positive way a lot of times. If he's going to accept a tax collector into his group of people that he considers his friends and fishermen and a lawyer and all that, I mean, like, he, he receives anyone. Well, I should too. See, if, if I see people in sin as being tormented like this woman's daughter, then I'll overlook everything. I'll overlook everything about them and just try to bring them to Jesus, or excuse me, bring Jesus to them. But, but I, I do think that, um, if we're being honest, there, there are things that we see and there are things that we have experienced in our past that shape how we value people. But that shouldn't be the case. We have to get rid of all of that. I don't know if that's a problem for this group, really. I, I don't think it is. But if, there's, if you find yourself valuing people in any way, like you just can see that in work, you can see that in your conversations with people, you can see that when you go to the coffee shop and, you know, a certain person is in line and you're all, you're really chatty with them. But then, you know, next thing you know, there's another person that's in front of you in line and you just find yourself just doing this, you know, and it's not just because you're in a, it's a bad day. You're listening to a podcast or whatever. It's like, you just, you don't feel like talking to them for whatever, like that, that's a problem. You're showing that you value people differently. And that's going to mean that you're probably going to value their need for Jesus differently. And that shouldn't be the case. The third main point that I want to bring out is that, this is kind of on the heels of that, is that I'll bring anyone I can to Jesus. Do you see what happens with this deaf man and the blind man? It says that they bring them to them, that they beg Jesus. That's what it says in verse 32. And you go to chapter 7, then you go to chapter 8 and verse 22. They beg Jesus, heal him, help him. Touch him. Do, do what you do. We, we, we know, I mean, word is spread to us that we know what you do, what you're able to do. So just do this, please. I, I wonder why they pursued Jesus so fervently for their friends. And I think it comes down to, to two main things. I think it's love and faith. This goes back to a little bit to the Syrophoenician woman, but I think it's a matter of love for the person and faith in Jesus. Now, really, when you zoom out, though, it is going to be about love for God. If I love people the way that I should, the way that God does, then I'll bring anyone to Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pray every day. I'll beg them. I'll beg God to provide an opportunity that even if it's not by me, if it's by somebody else, just God, please allow them to pursue you. Allow them to, you know, give, give them a reason and a motivation to have a relationship with you, to be cleansed from their sin, to change their life. Just, just a quick uh, example that 
I, I think it's a it's not exactly what I'm thinking of as far as how this looks, but it's back when I was in high school, so it's probably it's the best that that I knew at the time to do. When I was in high school, I was not evangelistic at all because I mean I just didn't really think about it. But the one way that I was thinking like, oh, this is something I need to do because this person that I love. Like she definitely needs to be faithful to God, and she's not. And she's she needs to be following Christ, and she's not. And that was with my mom. And I remember so long I would invite. All I knew to do was invite her to come to worship services with me. Right. That that was the best I knew. So I did that every single week, over and over and over. And then I got tired of it because you can only get disappointed and hear no so much so many times. Now I'm not trying to talk bad about my mom. Uh, I don't think she's going to listen to this, so it wouldn't matter anyway. But if you ever meet her, I'm not talking bad about my mom, okay? She was in a stage of her life that I think by her own admission, even though we haven't talked about this specifically, where it's just, there was a lot of guilt and shame that was really stopping her. And I think there was just some practical things in her life that she was unwilling to change, to put them aside, to actually pursue the Lord. That's all I knew to do was invite her every week Mom, you want to come with me to, to worship service? Like, I'll wait if you don't want to go to Bible class. We can just go to, we can just go to worship. And, and it usually wasn't a straight-up no because my mom loves me, and she knew that she needed to be there and be pursuing that. that. Uh, it was usually just, oh, we'll see. You know. So I would ask like the night before, then I would ask the morning of, and you get disappointed enough that you just stop. So I just stopped. And I found myself being very hardened to not her just in general, like it'd be great if people love the Lord and wanted to follow him. But if they're not going to, well, that's their choice. That was my attitude for a long time. I didn't have this drive of thinking like, Lord, please help this person because I love them. Even if they're not my mom, I don't care who they are. Like I should love people to the point I'll do whatever it takes and I'll pray for them. I'll invite them to something. I'll say, hey, let's study the Bible together or, or just let's be around each other and, and I'll undergo whatever uh, feelings of being uncomfortable there is because I think this person is, is odd or like we don't have any of the same interests. I'll go through whatever it is if it leads to me being able to share Christ with them. And I think that when we don't have that, I really do think that there's two things that are lacking. It's either my love for them or it's my faith in Jesus. Either I don't love them like I should or I don't believe that Jesus can actually do anything for them. In Mark 7, verse 36, it says, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Would Jesus have to tell you to stop talking to people about him? Would he have to say, hey, you're talking about me too much, you know? You're making life hard for me. Can, can you just stop? I know we live in a different time. I mean, Jesus doesn't tell us to stop, right? But also think about the man that is healed here in Mark 7. This man was, had a speech impediment. He was mute. And it actually says that his tongue was released. When his tongue was released, what do you think he was saying? I think he was telling people about Jesus. What about us? Like, I don't have a problem. Sometimes I stutter a little bit. And I think it's just because my brain is... I don't know what's working faster, my brain or my mouth. Probably my mouth, if I have to be honest with you. Um, But we all have those little issues like that. What's stopping us from talking to people about Jesus and what he's done for us? How he's had mercy on us? How he's brought about a change in our lives? Not not in some just feel-good way, but practical change. That 
This is what I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for me, that, that through His bloodshed that I am able to be forgiven of my sins and I can be changed and I can live a new life and that I have a new purpose, a new hope, all of that. What stops us from talking? Well, a lot of things can stop us, but there's no good reason that we can come up with. It would be amazing. It's, a, it's just, it's, it's amazing for me to think about what if Jesus was in front of us right now and just because we talked about him so much, he just had to say, I know you got a lot of zeal, but you're talking to people about me too much. There's nothing to be ashamed about. That, that's something we should aspire to, to have said about us. And it's a really easy message. We, we tell people exactly what the scriptures say, that Jesus offers them healing and salvation and that he died for us. And we talk personally, like this is what's changed in me. And I believe this is what can change in you. So the, the last point that I want to just mention is in verse 37. What were the people saying? He has done all things well. Jesus does all things well. This reminds me of creation a little bit. Because when God sat back, or stood back, or whatever he was doing, whatever his posture was, and he looked at his creation, what did he say? It was good. God does all things well in creation. And in turning something that is broken down and people that are broken back to how they should be, Jesus does all things well. In recreating people, in taking what has been deformed and been hurt through sin, he does all things well because he takes it back the way it should be. So he will completely heal like nobody else can. And we know that from the blind and mute man, especially the blind man. And it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter what we look like. It doesn't matter what our past is. It doesn't matter. Jesus does all things well for us. So I need to have that confidence, that faith. That like Jesus will do all things well for me if I will just submit to him. That he can change me totally. That doesn't matter what I've done. Doesn't matter what I did yesterday. Jesus will heal me completely. Doesn't matter how much I actually want these other things and I enjoy them. Like we talked about with the, the fruit of the spirit versus the works of the flesh and all of that. Like if I will just crucify the passions of the flesh, crucify the flesh and I just am led by the spirit I walk by the spirit I live by the spirit I find my very being in the spirit in spiritual things that doesn't matter what what I actually want like that's actually that's killed off and that only happens through Christ and if I believe that Jesus does all things well for me then I'll believe that he can do all things well for everybody else so now we can go tell people about him at one point we were mute at one point we didn't know what to say and sometimes we still are there. I, I don't know if you've ever been in just conversations with other Christians. You're like, you know, let's have like a brainstorming session on evangelism. What, what, do, you, what do we say to people? That, that's, that's fine to do that. I think that's very healthy because we, we work through issues that we all have. But if you really want to be honest with yourself, nothing stops you from saying things to people about Christ. Uh, you might not have the most knowledge. Where does it say that you have to have all of the knowledge? There were people that were telling people about Jesus that didn't know anything other than what he had done, what they saw with their very eyes, what they heard from other people. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't increase in knowledge. We just shouldn't think that more knowledge leads to more evangelism. No, more heart, 
more love, more faith. That leads to more change in, in ourselves and leads to more change in other people because it leads to more conversations about Jesus. So this group here is pretty focused on teaching those that, that are lost to help them come to Jesus because he's the only one where you can be found and, you, and he's the only one that will find you and, and take you to the Father and where you can, you know, you can truly find salvation. So I, I don't know if this is a really a problem for us, but I thought this lesson would just be helpful for us to be reminded that Jesus is the only one that can bring about change for ourselves. And if I believe that, nothing will stand in my way of being changed by him. And then nothing's going to stand in my way of telling other people about him. I hope we can be committed to that, that we can be purposed, be very intentional, and that as much as we are distracted by the other things in our lives, whether it's work, school, we have people that have moved, I mean, like, I can't imagine having to move all my stuff right now. I'm thinking about it, and I don't like thinking about it. It's terrible. Um, people that have just moved in, there are people that start new jobs. There's people that, I mean, other people that have moved. If you have a baby, I mean, there's so many things. And it's not like they're not legitimate things that distract us. But the truth is that nothing, nothing really is a great excuse for not at least talking about Jesus Christ to people. It's a simple conversation with someone at work. It's sharing what you did this weekend. It's, say, it's actually saying to somebody that you're going to pray for them, and then you pray for them. It's praying to God on someone's behalf, even when you don't tell them that you're going to pray for them. Taking advantage of every opportunity. <clears throat> Ephesians says that we redeem the time. So maybe we just start one day at a time. Let's redeem the time that God gives us towards people. If you actually need some prayers of the group here, we want you to know that we love you. We believe that Jesus is there for you, that God wants to hear from you, and that we will uh, go to the Father on your behalf, and we'll pray for you and with you. And we'll get in the trenches with you if we need to, and we'll keep up with you, and we'll study with you. But if, if that's not the case and you just think that you need some encouragement on some things, we want to be for you as well. We don't typically call this an, an invitation song or anything, but the Lord's invitation is, is always open. And so if you do, if you are considering your life and think you need to make some changes and you need the help of this group, let, let us know as we're singing the song or even after the song. But I do appreciate everyone's good attention today. And I hope that if, if you don't take anything away from the lesson, I hope that you believe with all your heart that Jesus can, can bring about salvation for you and that when it comes to evangelism, let's get after it. So. We're going to have a song now of encouragement that William leads us as we stand and sing.